Good morning, St. Stephen's. Uh, my name is Victor, and I have the privilege of reading the Bible for us this morning. Uh, but before we do that, how about I pray uh, as we prepare to hear from God's Word. Please pray with me. Gracious God, your Word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Today, when we hear your voice, deliver us from hardness of heart. Help us put away everything that keeps us from persevering in your way. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, The Bible reading for this morning uh, will be from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. In the church Bibles, it's on page 1111. starting from verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Victor. Good morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the Senior Minister. A very warm welcome. If you're new or you're visiting with us this morning at the start of the year, it's, it's good to have you with us. Uh, this morning, we're starting a little mini-series that will take us through to the end of January, and it's, it, it's exploring some of the big issues for people as they think about the Christian faith. What are the things that might be a hindrance for people or might simply just be questions that they have which are unanswered? And today, our question or our issue 
is why Christianity is not just a white man's religion. It's a phrase that's pregnant with meaning, so to speak, and it's a phrase that I think is uh, at the heart of many people's hesitancy with the Christian faith, especially here in our kind of modern Australian uh, setting. When we think about this, the, uh, the, the underlying uh, hesitancy behind this is a fear of what I would call colonial imperialism, a fear that uh, Christianity is simply a tool for making people like um, European culture, Western European culture. Uh, it comes perhaps for most people who hold this hesitancy from images of uh, uh, colonials meeting indigenous people and bringing with them the Christian faith and it having expectation of them that they would become like them as they become Christian. Uh, in, there is a lot of truth to this and there's also some falsehood to this. It's, it's a recasting of history that's not completely correct. But there is sufficient truth to give people a fear that what Christianity is asking you to do is to become European, to become Western, white Western as well, particularly. And, so, and, and this, this, I mean, yes, the more infamous examples are perhaps colonisation, but we, we, it must be reflected that this remains true for um, large parts of church practice even now. So someone who comes from a non-European culture is often struck when they walk into a church by lots of things that appear to be heavily European um, at, at the heart of, of the practice of Christianity. For example, Christmas, when we think of celebrating Christmas, for a lot of people, that still involves you know, a, a, a turkey and a ham on Christmas Day. It might be 39 degrees, but there's your baked goods at the middle of the Christmas table. It, it's a practice that probably suits more a cold European winter than you know, a, a classic Australian summer, which is where we have Christmas. Uh, and we see these practices, they weave their ways into the, the, the life of a church, from the ornaments that we have in buildings uh, to the ways we do things and the ways we might even practice certain forms of the Christian life. And so the question is, is that a re relevant and legitimate uh, criticism of the Christian faith? Now, of course, the, the contention behind the, even the heading is that, no, that's not the case. Why Christianity is not just a white man's religion. And I want to say to you, we see that only when we go back to what is the core of the Christian faith. If you were to go to the cricket, uh, the test match, for example, at the SCG, and you turn up at lunchtime, when it's not raining, and, and there on the field you might see a bunch of little people gathered around playing Milo cricket. Now, one version of Milo cricket has the ball on a little tee and they run up and hit the ball. You look at that and you think, if you've never known anything about cricket, you think, that's what cricket is. But that's not what cricket is. You wait 40 minutes and you see the professionals turn up. You see that is what cricket is. You have to go back to the core thing. You have to go back to the root, not the derivative of it. Uh, and, and sometimes I think the challenge for us as we think about Christianity in our modern setting is that we look at the derivative of it and we assume that that is what Christianity really is. But what is core Christianity? That's the question. 
And that's why I had the passage from Acts 17 read to us today, because I think here, as Paul, the apostle, speaks to the gathering in the Areopagus, we, we meet core Christianity, we meet the core convictions of the church in the words of the apostle here. The Areopagus is this kind of Greek high culture place it's where they talk about morals and education and religion. It's where you find Greek culture, the predominant defining culture of the, of the time, in its clearest form. And Paul steps into that space and he brings this clarifying word about what it really means because they have their sense of what it looks like to worship God. And Paul comes to them and says, Actually, strip away all your cultural understandings of what it means to worship God. Here is who God is, and here is what it means. And Paul answers, actually, for us what, what it looks like. How do we think about the predominant culture and core Christianity? He says two things. First of all, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands. In other words, he says... Christianity is not served by one particular culture, by the imagination of one particular group of people. Christianity is not understood through the lens simply of one human culture. And so, what is true for the Greeks is true for us. You see, Christianity is not, is not primarily understood through the Western lens, Western culture, or the Western expression even of Christianity. God is above all cultures, actually. And the God we meet in Scripture and in the great story of the Bible is above all cultures. He's not primarily found even in the Western culture. And then he goes on, he, adds, he says more, he says, in fact, for one man he made all nations. That's from Adam. He's going back to Genesis. He says from Adam he made all nations. And so in a sense, he's... Is bring all, all cultures and all nations to the same level. It says there's no priority in cultures because they all come back to Adam. Western culture, Asian culture, African culture, 21st Western culture as opposed to 15th century European culture, they all come back to this same root and grounding point. And so actually all cultures, all cultures are equal. He adds a very interesting nuance, he says, and he marked out their appointed times in history and, their boundary, and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, cultures are ebb and flow. At this point in time, the Western culture is the predominant culture. At his time, it was the Greek culture. At other times, it's been the, the Sino-Chinese culture. But he says those come and go. And in fact, that's his way of understanding, actually, why at one time and place it seems like there is one culture that's clearly dominant and, and in fact, in, in, in our mind, it might even be clearly tied to Christianity. But those come and go. All cultures are equal. All cultures actually find their, their, their root from Adam. And so what we see here in Paul is a clear conviction that one particular cultural expression of Christianity is not the way you do Christianity. Even, I mean, it's not even for us to say, oh, God has appointed that we should do Christianity the European, Western European way, the Australian way. Because uh, that, that is for a time. It ebbs and flows. 
and all, all cultural expressions of Christianity have, have a sense of equality because they come from Adam. Now, this is not just Paul making a, a kind of a revisionist perspective because you might think to yourself, actually, though, didn't God actually prioritise one culture in the Old Testament? Didn't he set aside uh, Israel as, uh, and the Hebrews as one particular cultural expression? Well, that, that's, that's right in the sense that, that was their appointed time. But what you actually see is even in the Old Testament and through the story of the Bible, God is constantly saying, no, actually, all cultures, all ethnicities, all nations have an equal standing before God. Uh, look at this. This is a very interesting verse. It's from Isaiah 19. The uh, prophet says this. Says, Isaiah 19, he's just been pronouncing judgment on Egypt and Assyria. But at the end of the chapter, he finishes the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. He says, actually, in the end, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, all the same. All the same. God's great vision is not just to bless Israel, but to bless Egypt and to bless Assyria, the two, the two enemies of Israel at this point in time. Such as God's. The story continues, of course, because Jesus' own ministry is a ministry not just to Jews, but of course uh, to, to the other nations. In fact, we see famously some of his key figures are non Jewish, like the, the parable of the Samaritan, the key, the key hero in that story is a Samaritan. Uh, the, the, he, he feeds 5,000 on one side of the Galilee, which is a predominantly Jewish area, and then he crosses over to a predominantly Gentile area and does the same miracle again. We learned two weeks ago uh, of Jesus' last teaching to his disciples. Go into the nations, he says, and make disciples. The last thing he leaves his church with is a desire that all the nations, all the nations would know God. And when we get to Acts, we get this story unfurled over and over. Peter, uh, the, the apostle, He's called in Acts 10. He has this vision of a sheet, and on it there's all this food, and the food represents different cultures. Uh, many of those foods previously Jews would not have eaten, but God says, no, you can eat all of them. They're, they're all legitimate now. They're all fine. And Peter is then taken to a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, and, and he sees this, this man and his household come to faith and the Holy Spirit come down on him. And Peter says this, he has this great realisation. He says, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. From every nation. In fact, Peter has this realisation and it's almost like a sense that we, as we read this, this story of the early church developing and growing, should also have this, this great realisation that every nation is now able to come before God. And this story continues through into Revelation. I've mentioned this passage before, where John, having a vision of the final city, the, the, the end point of God's great story, says this is what he sees. He says, The nations will walk by its light, that's the light of the sun, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, into the great city, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there'll be no night there, and the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. See, the last picture is not the Jewish people or one particular cultural expression being uplifted as the way, but all nations and cultures coming and bringing it in service of Christ, the great Son who brings light to the city. 
I remember going in September last year down to southwest Sydney. The um, central organisation of the diocese had organised for us to go off and visit some, some churches out in southwest Sydney and see the ministries going on there. And at lunchtime, they'd catered for us. And so you, you went to the catering desk and there was the, you know, the box of food and in it was the baguette and the salad and a carrot cake and a can of Coke. Well, I mean, it's fine. The food looked good. Walk around the corner. And the churches in the area had taken it upon themselves to, to kind of supplement gloriously our catering. And there, as you walked around, was a couple of uh, subcontinental families serving uh, food from Pakistan and India and Sri Lanka. And, and, and then there was a, a few uh, families of Asian background. There was Asian food there. There was African food. And I thought of this verse. I thought, this is what God is, this is what he's leading towards, you see. He's not saying, I want you to all become European. No, I I want you, whatever your cultural background, to bring it in service of the Lord there. This is the great vision. You see, when people say Christianity is a white man's religion, they might be talking about a derivative of Christianity, but they're not talking about core Christianity, because core Christianity is culturally broad and diverse. This is, this, this is what God is, this is how God is working. This is what he's promising. This is what Jesus does. This is where he's taking the story. And, and so if perhaps that's, maybe that's a, a fear that you've had. Maybe that's just the way you've experienced Christianity. I want you to see, beware the derivative. Embrace, embrace the core form of Christianity. Now, why is it then that the church is still is still open to this criticism because it is i mean we as i mentioned there's all these things especially here in sydney there are all these things which are just inherently tied to our kind of european heritage why why is it that people might walk in and find one culture as the dominant thing and even feel like they have to they have to shift into that cultural expression if they're to be kind of authentically christian why, why, why is that pressure constantly there if that's what the Bible is teaching? I think the reason is because the propensity of the human heart is always to prioritise kind of our cultural heritage. We always have a desire to say, you know, what I am, and if the, if the predominant number of people in, in the building are European, that's going to be the European culture. The propensity of the human heart is to say, my cultural heritage is ultimately the best Yours, yours is okay, but mine is closer to what God wants. Mine is closer to the experience that God wants us to have. And we do that because perhaps, perhaps we're looking for a leg up. We, just, we want to feel more assured that we're right with God. And we're in the right cultural space, so at least that's going to make us a bit more accessible to God. Uh, I mean, this is not new, though, feeling a bit burdened by this. We're, we're in a long story of this happening. The story of the early church in Acts is a story of the Jewish cultural heritage, those holding Jewish cultural heritage, constantly trying to, trying to force that on Gentiles. Constantly trying to say to them, no, no, if you want to be right with God, you need to be culturally Jewish. You need to do what Jewish people do. If you want to worship God right, you've got to worship them the Jewish way. In fact, so much so that they ultimately comes to a head in, in Acts 15, where they have a great council in Jerusalem to answer this very question. And Peter says to them, no, no, 
We know that the Gentiles are saved by grace and we are saved by grace. Jews are saved by grace. They're constantly battling this. This is a constant, even Peter himself, though he's advocating for one point, at another point makes the same mistake. Tim Keller, the, the, um, the New York pastor, he talks about the fact that uh, this comes down to, self, to self-righteousness. Here's what he says. He says, for most people then race and culture are a kind of self-righteousness. We think of ourselves as the good ones, not like those people over there. That means we tend to make our cultural preferences, which are no, no more than that, preferences into moral absolutes and badges. I think there's some truth to that. We, you know, we think the, the way that I always sang songs, the way that I always came to church, the, the emotional engagement that I have, you know, that's what I grew up with. That's, what, that's what's actually what God really wants from his people. I'll put up with other people, but I, I'm, I'm onto something that really pleases God. And, and you know what? If that's you, if, if, this just, if this just pricks our conscience a bit, but we think there's certain ways that I, I've attached a bit of a, a moral value to doing certain things. Oh, I see a certain moral value to a certain style of music or a certain type of expression or a certain way of dress or a certain way of speaking well, then, then maybe we're guilty of this. And what's interesting is that I think what, what, what Tim Keller's articulating and what we see throughout Acts is that actually the, the, this propensity to prioritise our, our own cultural heritage is not just a sociological thing, it's a deeply spiritually rooted problem which comes so closely connected to how we see ourselves actually relating to God. Does our cultural heritage give us a, a leg up, so to speak? It's not just cultural heritage. I mean, there's lots of parts of our life that we tend to self right Oh, I parent this way and they don't, you know. I'm sure God would be happy with the way I treat my kids. Or, or I serve this way. I know I'm sure God is pleased with the way I serve. It's a shame they don't do it like that. We have this in our hearts, isn't it? Now, the question is, how do we solve this? Well, how does Paul solve it? I mean, he's coming to the Greeks. They are self-righteous about their culture. I mean, you see it a little bit at the end when one of them sneers to his response, right? There's, this, there's a tendency when you are the dominant culture to be self-righteous. But how does he respond? He doesn't just tell them. He doesn't just call them out. Actually, calling people out, just because you can perceive the blind spot of the dominant culture, doesn't protect you from the fundamental root problem which is self-righteousness you can call someone out ah, you think christianity is a white man's religion and harbor self-righteousness in your own heart you're as much to blame as they are he doesn't call them out primarily he brings the gospel to bear on them the story of jesus and his ministry the fundamental reason christ came and the fundamental response that we're called to have that's what he puts before them front and center That's how he gets rid of the the cultural issue. And he says, come and focus on Christ. See what he says. He says, God has overlooked your ignorance. God has overlooked your cultural blind spots. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You know what he says? He doesn't say, now he commands you Greeks to repent. Because that's not what the gospel says. The gospel isn't, oh, that culture needs to repent. 
the gospel is that all cultures, all peoples must repent. In fact, in the Greek, it's all people, all places. There's a real emphasis on this that Paul is bringing home. He says, the God is calling all people everywhere to repent. And you know, when you do that, when, when you do that, it really humbles you. It, it kind of takes away that self-righteousness. Don't worry about what the other culture is missing in their understanding of God. Reflect on your own. What is missing? We think Western Christianity, don't, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things that really reflect some of the core um, ethics and thinking behind Jesus' teaching in Western Christianity. But there's also things that Western culture has a lot to repent of. Individualism, materialism, just to name a couple. These are things which Western culture has happily co-opted into the Christian faith and corrupted it. It's a derivative we don't want, right? Don't worry about what other cultures... Of course, there are things that Asian culture brings into the Christian faith and, 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 and subcontinental custom, culture brings into the Christian faith which are not core Christianity. But don't worry about them. Repent, all, all peoples everywhere repent. What is it about your cultural heritage that you need to repent of? Paul starts there. And then he says, secondly... Entrust yourself to Jesus, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He says, entrust yourself to Jesus. Repent of prioritizing your cultural way of meeting God and entrust yourself to Christ. Put yourself in Jesus' hands, holy. He's worth it. Why? Because he's, he's shown himself on his resurrection. Entrust yourself to Jesus. See, the key is not, let's try and make a Christianity that every single culture always understands. Rather, the key is, let us bring all people to meet Christ, to entrust themselves to Christ. Worry less about their cultural ex uh, expression of it. Worry more about whether they've met Christ. That's what Paul's doing here. And you know what? When you preach the gospel, here's where I'm finished. When you preach this gospel of Jesus, it naturally draws people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It naturally does it. And the history of the church is a history that repeats this and, and brings this out. This picture, this iconic picture, is a picture of St. Augustine, the great St. Augustine. Now, most pictures you find of St. Augustine, he's white. But actually, he's a North African the early centuries of the church, one of the great theologians and philosophers of Christian history is an African. You know, the, the, um, you know, we think of India as a place predominantly Hindu and Christianity only came with the British in the 1900s, late 1800s. No, the Christian, Christianity was found in India by the third or fourth century, even before it was firmly established in Europe. It was already being established in the Indian subcontinent. And if you cast your eye forward to the present day, you know, by 2030, they, they believe there'll be more Christians in China than there are in America. More Christians in China. We think of Christianity as, you know, American megachurches. But there are more Christians in the Chinese subcontinent than there are in, in, in the American continent. Seven years from now. And they, they estimate by 2050... 40% of all Christians will be in Africa. In Africa. 
the story of the gospel is God bringing people from all nations. That's my story. I came to Australia in 1985 as a five-year-old Sri Lankan boy. I remember going to a church and feeling like the only dark-skinned kid there. Totally out of place. But God in his grace, I look back now, God in his grace brought me to Australia not for a better education, to meet my darling wife, to have a particular lifestyle. God brought me to Australia to meet him. That's the grace of God, which draws people from all nations, tribes and tongues. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel which is offered to all nations, that from the very beginning you have sought to love all people and you offered the Lord Jesus for all of us. Father, we want to repent of those times when uh, our comfort or our self-righteousness, when those things uh, make us look down on others, exclude others, or simply ignore others. Heavenly Father, would you shape us around the Lord Jesus? Would you help us to see our universal need for him and the the glory of following him who brings us to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.